Welcome to Crime of the Truest Kind. My name is Angel Wood. This is episode number 10. I'm very excited. Episode 10, I'm very excited. You know, this is a baby podcast. I only launched four months ago. October 1st, first official release. Episode 1, Whitey Bulger. So I'm very excited. This is a huge benchmark. Thank you for all of your support in making this possible. You have been outstanding. All of you who listen and support the show, so of course follow everything. In the true crime community, I had no idea what to expect when I decided to actually pull the trigger, pun intended, and do a podcast, a true crime podcast. I'd been wanting to for a very long time, never had the time, and I decided to make the time. People in the true crime community, you are amazing. And I'm not used to that level of support. I worked in radio in the music business for a lot of years, and it's not warm and fuzzy like that. So thank you to all of you who are making this possible. I look forward to more. So of course, I ask you, to listen to the show, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell a friend. Help me grow. I'm just a little baby after all. Crimeofthetruestkind.com. And of course, everywhere you get your crime stories, Apple Podcasts, etc. I did set up a buy me a coffee tip jar on the website where you can simply buy me a coffee. I love coffee. And I love you, Sandy. Sandy bought me some coffee. You're a wonderful person. If you have not listened to part one, episode nine, I recommend you go back and at least get some of the important details. This is part two. Neil Entwistle, The Happy Family Murder, Hopkinton, Massachusetts. On January 22nd, 2006, a young mother and her infant daughter are found dead in their bed in their rented home in Hopkington, Massachusetts. Family and friends had not been able to reach them. It was something uncharacteristically abnormal about the new mother. On the second search in as many days, police found the bodies of Rachel and Lillian lying together in the queen-size bed in the home's large master bedroom. What was different during this search than the one before was the smell. Baby Lillian was resting in Rachel's arms. Both had been dead for two days. Officers did look for a third victim, presumably the husband and father, as he appeared in many of the photos around the house. But he was nowhere to be found. Missing, actually, and unreachable. State Trooper Robert Manning eventually did make contact with Neil Entwistle at his parents' home in England. That is where he fled the morning after he claimed to have found Rachel and Lillian in their bed. The two had a more than two-hour-long conversation, of which Neil Entwistle spoke about how he found Lillian and Rachel in their bed. I saw uh, Rachel on, on the bed now. When I first looked, he just... I know it's difficult. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's very difficult, but I, I need when when. When I first looked, it, it, it just looked like she was asleep. Okay, was she right on, were they right on top of the bed? No, they were, they, 
the covers were partially up. Okay. Um, so it, it, they, they were under the covers, but not kind of maybe maybe half, half three quarters. When I walked in, I couldn't see Lily. I could only see, I could only see Rachel, and, and she just looked asleep. Which, you know, I'm at, at first it didn't look anything wrong, but why would she have been in bed at that time, and where was Lily? Mm-hmm. And so as I went up, I, the first thing I noticed was just her colour. She was kind of pale, and then, and then as I got closer, I could see the blood, and that's when I saw Lily, Lily's the top half of the, the face was out, and um, I, I pulled the, the covers back, and So he fumbles through an explanation, and it's difficult to hear him breathe, like he's having some real emotion about his family being dead. I haven't, I, I haven't even cried yet. You haven't even cried? No, not properly. No? No. But what, what would properly be? Because usually, my experience is not really a proper way in a situation like no. this, things just happen. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that is, no, I I shed a, a few tears. My Rachel at Christmas sent over. Um, we did little presents from Lily, and we sent over these little crystals that people could hang in there. Mm-hmm. Could hang in their windows. Um, she wrote a little note with it that said, "You know, when you see this sparkle, think of me." As it, it, it being from Lillian, and I walked in my parents' conservatory and saw it. And, Start to cry, but it just—it wasn't even, not even that many tears. I don't, I don't know what I'm thinking at the moment. I just—I think it's almost because I'm here. It doesn't even seem real. It's just a well, let me, void. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, it is real. Okay. Yeah. And um, it is real, and and something happened over here. And I, um, I'm trying to 
I'm trying to get as much information as I can. Yeah. And I'm taking you, uh, I'm believing what you tell me. Only, um, I can tell you, I have a hard time understanding why you, want, why you didn't call 911. Excellent point, Trooper Manning. Neil Entwistle finds his family dead, says they were both shot, covers them up with blankets, leaves the house, gets on a plane, and flies to England. The more we learn, the worse it gets. Neil Entwistle appeared to be a big spender, but never had any cash. Everything was credit. Now, this was the mid-2000s, and today that's not unusual with Apple Pay and PayPal and Venmo and Square and Stripe, etc. There are a lot. Rachel and Neil came back to the U.S. because, according to what Rachel told her mother, Aunt Whistle would never amount to anything in England because of his Northern English accent. Terribly classist, for sure. I've seen comments online about his horrid Nottingham accent. Harsh. He was the son of a former coal miner from a working-class background. Yet I find it somewhat odd when I read that his family bragged about him being university material. While Rachel missed the tight group of friends she'd made in England, she was happy that she was close to her parents and that they were able to see Lily on a regular basis. Rachel's mother Priscilla Matarazzo told investigators that the three of them were last at her house in Carver on January 16th, four days before their murders, and that Entwistle used the computer in the office during that visit. Investigators had already begun the task of questioning everyone, to learn what may have led to the murders of Rachel and Lillian. They knew they'd been shot, Rachel once in the head and once in the chest. That second shot entered her breast through her daughter. Baby Lily had been shot at point-blank range in her abdomen. A burn hole the size of a 22 caliber round was seen in her pajamas during the trial. But they didn't know where the guns were that killed them. Nothing was found at the scene. When police officers went to question Rachel's family about the days and weeks leading up to hers and Lily's deaths, including getting a better understanding of their financial situation, Mrs. Monterazzo talked about not really knowing what Entwistle did for work prior to their move to the States, and how no one, Rachel included, knew how he'd been earning a living for the month since arriving in Massachusetts. Remember that red flag from Episode 9? Rachel had no idea about their financial situation at all. Mrs. Matarazzo gave the officers some financial information, including billing statements from two of Rachel's credit cards. Some background on a few accounts that she was aware of, including a joint account from the two of them, to which Neil Entwistle's name was added after they got married. It wasn't clear whether Rachel had any major debt aside from about $18,000 in student loans outstanding from two lenders. The investigation was digging deeper into potential motives. Why would a man who, by all outward signs, was a doting dad and a loving husband want to kill his family? There were a few signs. In hindsight is, as they say, 2020. He had no money, no friends, no job, and was spending money like he stamped it out in the basement. Mrs. Monterazzo gave investigators a business card Aunt Whistle had given her, which appeared to be homemade, a folded piece of paper held together with clear tape, with the words ENT Embedded New Technologies printed on it. There was no business address or telephone number listed on the card. A quick Google search of this alleged business found the address came back to 41 Tremont Street in Carver, the Matarazzo's house. The company provided computer services 
something Neil Entwistle was said to have a talent for, or if you're from Massachusetts, you're wicked good at it. The company was also listed on the rental application for their home at Six Cubs Path as a reference. Except on the rental application, the address is not listed in Carver. It's an address on St. John Street in London. A search for that address at St. John Street, London, came back to a company called First Catalyst, of which Neil Entwistle had no connection. It was a dummy address. Smell some bullshit? So many red flags, I cannot see straight. Officers asked about firearms, and Joe Monterazzo told them that he owned a number of guns, including a 22 caliber revolver and a rifle that he kept locked in his bedroom and kept the keys on the counter. He last used his guns, including the 22 calibers, on Saturday, January 21st, when he went target shooting. The last time he had used the 22s before that was in the fall, around the same time he'd taken Entwistle target shooting with the 22s. So Neil Entwistle knew where the guns were and how they were stored. Mr. Matarazzo willingly turned all of the guns over to the police for ballistics examination and comparison to the projectiles taken from Rachel. Items seized during the execution of the search warrant at the house in Hopkinton were about to turn up the heat on the investigation. The search warrant called for the seizure of evidence relating to the deaths of Rachel and Lillian, something that would be disputed by the defense at trial. Officers at the scene noticed some data storage disks and two Toshiba laptops. All were secured and collected. The state's crime lab dug into those computers, and what they found would be the equivalent of a digital timeline of the activities of Neil Entwistle starting at or around the time he arrived in the States. He'd been very busy. He was applying for work. He had applied for a job as a computer engineer at one company, an intrinsic corporation that at the time was in Westboro. A recruiter at the company told Entwistle there were no openings at the time that he applied. He applied two more times once in September and again in December, one month before the murders. In December, that same recruiter said Entwistle had applied for a job he knew he was not qualified for, but he said he wanted to make sure the company knew he was still interested in working for them. Part of his new business ventures on the internet had generated more complaints than revenue. His failing to deliver software that he sold to unsuspecting buyers on eBay was a strong indicator in his lack of business prowess. Dozens of complaints were coming in from registered buyers who said they had not received goods that they had paid for. An eBay fraud investigator would later tell a court that Entwistle had six different accounts set up in his name. He ran a site called millionmaker.co.uk, which was the equivalent of a get-rich-quick scheme that offered around-the-clock support to those with adult internet businesses and promised a profit of $6,000 a month within the first six months. He may have fancied himself a bit of an entrepreneur, but he was also under investigation for an online venture in which he promised to help customers establish porn sites for a sizable upfront fee. Sizable as in like more than $1,000. I believe this is separate from the get-rich-quick scheme, but it's not clear to me. But it's his online searches that led to a much darker story. When computer forensic analysts got a hold of those laptops, what they saw was a wealth of activity. Heavily trafficked were escort sites. He was looking for sex, and he was all over hookup sites. It was like 
Tinder for the 2000s. Like Adult Friend Finder, which claims to be the world's largest adult sex and swinger site. At least it was in 2008 when The Guardian wrote about the case. Among its 20 million members was Neil Entwistle, bound by growing debt, living beyond his means, feeling neglected by his wife who had just had a baby nine months earlier. His online existence was an escape. Maybe. It was definitely a secret from Rachel. On January 16th, four days before the murders, he visits the adult friend finder site. He was, evidently, dedicated to finding sexual partners through internet chat rooms, personal advertisements, and related services, as their service promotes. And he did make attempts to make contacts for dates. On January 18th, he searched for escort services and looked for the names and addresses of several in Boston and Worcester, including Eye Candy Entertainment, Exotic Express, Sweet Temptations, and Blonde Beauty's Escorts, SVC. I looked up some of these sites to see if they were still active. Some are. I hope I don't regret that. I'm going to guess that my social media ads are going to change from dog collars and house decorations and eye makeup. Through Adult Friend Finder, he sent a series of emails to potential dates saying he was looking for more fun in the bedroom. His profile on the site, recovered by investigators from his laptop, read, I'm looking to meet American women of all ages. I need to confirm what friends have told me, that you are much better in bed than the women over the ocean, as from there. We both want the same thing, so there is little point dragging it out here. A photo said to have been found on Entwistle's adult friend finder profile, or AFF as I now call it, shows him splayed out on a lounge chair, fronty bits exposed, naked as a jaybird, and fully aroused. I did look for it, and I found it. With the fronty bits blurred out, of course. The photo was inadmissible in court. Defense argued that it wasn't Neil Entwistle. See for yourself. It is on my Instagram, at Crime of the Truest Kind, and link to the gallery on the website, crimeofthetruestkind.com. He continued to search for dates. There were visits to escorts.naughtynightlife.com, hotlocalescorts.com, halfpriceescorts.com. Half price escorts, though? They should really think better of themselves. I don't sex shame. You do you with whomever, so long as everyone is in alignment with what you got going on. And I do not believe Rachel was in on the side sex. Side sex? I guess I just turned sex into a starch. My mind works in weird ways. Four days before his family was murdered in their home, his username was used to search the internet for best way to kill someone. And images recovered from one of the laptops that showed the major arteries in the body with a number of strike points in the chest. Shortly after 4 p.m. on January 17th, a person using Entwistle's username, who do you think it was, also searched for the phrase knife in neck kill. On the same day, the same user also searched for quick suicide method. Here's where signs point to premeditated murder. The last search on Adult Friend Finder was on January 20th, sometime after 11 a.m., when he claimed he had returned home and found the bodies of his family dead in bed. During his two-hour phone call with Trooper Manning, Entwistle spoke about discovering the lifeless bodies of his family in their bed. And he said that after learning they were both dead, that he went to the kitchen to find a knife to kill himself, but didn't have the courage to do it. One theory 
was that this was a murder-suicide gone wrong. He had the courage to kill his family, but failed when he needed it the most. Sound harsh? I don't worry about the feelings of murderers. So instead of coming to the aid of his family or calling anyone to help, Entwistle made the 40-minute car drive to Logan Airport on January 20th. He slept in his car in the airport parking garage, and his plan all along could have been to kill Rachel and Lily and flee back to England. At 7 a.m. the next morning, he made a series of credit card cash withdrawals to buy a one-way ticket back to England for $787. And then he left the country little more than an hour later. Once he landed at Heathrow in London, he rented a car and drove 800 miles around the country, eventually making it to his parents' home that is only 160 miles from London. Was he thinking about how he'd face his parents having knowledge of his dead family back in the U.S.? Sounds like the work of a guilty man. He put his story together, one he had surely concocted during an international flight in an 800-mile country drive, and told his parents that Rachel killed Lillian and herself as she was suffering from postpartum depression. And he, the dutiful husband, took the weapon to protect her memory. That is simply unforgivable for Rachel's family. Neil Entwistle's defense lawyer said that Rachel killed Lily and then herself. There's that parallel with the Watts case I mentioned in episode 9. Chris Watts killed Shanann Watts, then his two young daughters Bella and Cece. But when questioned, first blamed Shanann for killing the little girls. That guy pisses me off. It's very unlikely that I will ever cover that case on this show, so I will say this. Is there any bigger pussy than a man who loses some weight and gets a new girlfriend who he oddly falls madly in love with in like a month, then decimates his entire family? Annihilator, that's what they call them. Neil Entwistle did not return to Massachusetts for the funeral. Rachel and Lily were buried together in her hometown of Kingston, Massachusetts. Their headstone reads, Rachel Souza and Lillian Rose Souza. There is no mention of Entwistle anywhere in the history of their existence after his involvement became clear. Police believe the search for sex was a diversion from the increasing financial pressures the unemployed computer consultant was facing. His professional life was a sham. And he was a fraud. So rather than being a successful computer programmer, like he'd have his family believe, he was the equivalent of an internet spammer. You know, like those emails that end up in your junk folder with lots of emojis and punctuation in the subject line? He delivered no magical results in business or the bedroom. It's reported that Entwistle's defense team tried to float that Rachel was also dissatisfied with their sex life. They had just spent months living with her parents in a small house and had little privacy. Remember, they'd been living in the house in Hopkinton for 10 days. Only 10 days. 10 days to reset their family, 10 days to reset their relationship as a married couple, no longer under her parents' roof. Things happen to men. Things happen to women, but I'm specifically talking about men like Neil Entwistle who annihilate their family. Sometimes it's caused by untreated mental illness. Sometimes it's personality disorders, narcissistic tendencies. There's also a such thing as the charismatic psychopath. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not sure what Neil Entwistle was. He took Rachel in. He was her Prince Charming, saying all sorts of romantic lines about her. 
Their love story was poetic, like a romance movie. They met in college. Neil adored Rachel. All their friends said it. They fell in love that semester, and they were serious. Despite her leaving for her senior year back at Holy Cross in Worcester, they were planning for a future together. They had a fairy tale wedding. And soon, Lillian Rose came. When did things change for him? He had been parading around as a successful businessman for who knows how long. Once he left his job in England, he didn't get another one. Was his plan to make a go of it on his own as an eBay peddler and a porn site mogul? Mogul's a stretch, but I think you follow. The prosecution saw it very differently. They told the jury that Entwistle shot his family with his father-in-law's 22 Colt revolver that he'd taken from the Matarazzo home in Carver when they weren't home, shot Rachel and Lily, and returned it before anyone noticed it was gone. If I understand the timeline, that would be Friday, January 20th. Mr. Matarazzo told police he used his 22 caliber firearms on January 21st. He'd gone target shooting with the gun that only hours earlier had murdered his stepdaughter and his granddaughter. That must haunt him all these years later. It is a story that has stayed with many people. Norman Miller covered the Entwistle case in 2006 and wrote about their experience on the 10th anniversary for the Metro West Daily News, a local paper. This was a huge story on a local and regional level. And in the UK too, which I will get to. This piece is from five years ago. Some cases stick with you, he wrote. The murders of Rachel and Lillian Rose Entwistle were not the first slayings I had covered. And it wasn't the first time I had written about the murder of an infant. Like other killings, this one was horrible. But like other murders and numerous other crimes, my focus on the first day was to get as many details as I could, try to talk to as many people as possible, and file an accurate story that many people would want to read. At first, the case was like others for me. It was my job to write about it. Then, someone found a link to a website that suspect Neil Entwistle had set up. It featured hundreds of photos of him, Rachel, and Lillian Rose. The entirety of Lillian Rose's nine months of life were in those photos. Every photo portrayed the perfect life. Neil and Rachel were always smiling, and Lillian Rose seemed like a joyful baby. Every day, I found myself returning to that website and looking at those photos of this seemingly perfect family. It was a glimpse into lives you rarely get before Facebook took off and everyone had a camera on their phone. The Entwistle articles, dozens in the weeks between the murder and Neil Entwistle's eventual arrest and arraignment, became more personal than any other series of stories I had ever written before. It was the first time I dreamed about cases I'd covered. It was the first time I couldn't leave work at the office. I wanted to get as much information as I could. Not just to beat dozens of other reporters covering the case, but because people cared about this family. To this day, after covering thousands of arraignments, Aunt Whistle's Framingham District Court arraignment on February 16th, 2006 is still the most memorable one I've covered. The courtroom was filled with reporters. But when Rachel's parents, Joe and Priscilla Matarazzo, and their supporters walked in, the women wearing a lily and a rose, 
the room went silent. The only thing you could hear was an occasional cough until you heard Aunt Whistle's slow walk up the stairs from the holding area to the courtroom. It was the first time I understood the saying, you could cut the tension with a knife. Neil Entwistle turned out to be a hustler in every way. When he was arrested in London on February 9th, he had a notebook on him in which he was writing about how he wanted to sell his story to the highest bidder. He was taken into custody while boarding the tube in London and returned to Massachusetts to face murder charges in the shooting deaths of Rachel and Lillian Rose. At trial, state police chemists testified that Entwistle's DNA was found on the handle of the gun turned over by Mr. Matarazzo, and Rachel's DNA was found on the muzzle of the gun. We know Entwistle had the keys to get into their home, that he knew where the guns were kept, and where the keys were to unlock where the guns were being stored. All eyes were on this trial as it played out in a Woburn courtroom. Crime scene video of the bedroom where Rachel and Lily were found covered up in their bed was played for the court accompanied only by the sound of classical music in the background. It's something Rachel was known to play for the baby to help calm her. Monitors were set up for the jury and lawyers to watch, away from the view of spectators and press in the courtroom. Neil Entwistle cried, or attempted to. The 20-minute-long video was sure to have an emotional effect on the court, but his behavior is confounding. He repeatedly covered his face, and sometimes appeared to be laughing. And his behavior triggered his mother, Yvonne Entwistle, to sob audibly. She was comforted by her tearful husband Clifford and their younger son Russell. Judge Diane Kottmeyer told the jurors that they may feel sympathy for the victims, but they were required to put aside any feeling or any emotion when it came to decide the verdict. Massachusetts State Police Sergeant Mary Ritchie described what was on the video, taken early on the morning of January 23rd at 6 Cubs Path in Hopkinton. A portion of the video shows investigators uncovering the bodies of Rachel and Lillian Rose as they lay in the bed. It features close-up examinations of the bodies, including blood found on them and the bullet wound in Lily's chest. Attorneys for Entwistle, Elliot Weinstein and Stephanie Page, blasted media reports that came in throughout the day that suggested Entwistle was smiling and laughing rather than crying. Weinstein said he watched the video as it played, and Page watched Entwistle. It was Page's job to, quote, make sure he was okay to see this horror that he did not commit. Stephanie Page told reporters that there is no way Neil would be laughing. He is grieving. He lost his wife. He lost his baby. I posted the video of him watching, and it's bizarre. He may very well be crying, but he cries in a very, very awkward manner. It's like, um, it's like watching Elaine Bennis dance on Seinfeld awkward. His defense team reprimanded the media for their coverage. He does look maniacal, and he's been very good at keeping up appearances until now. Psychopaths get very good at masking their sanity. There's a book by Dr. Hervey Cluckley, The Mask of Sanity, where he talks about how well psychopaths blend into the rest of society to fool, to use, to defraud, and to harm others. They are masters of charm and sweet talk and have a keen ability to lie so convincingly. 
Dr. Cleckley observed that more often than not, the typical psychopath will seem particularly agreeable and make a distinctly positive impression when they are first encountered. Alert and friendly in their attitude, they are easy to talk with and seem to have a good many genuine interests. They would seldom be confused with the professional backslapper or someone who is trying to ingratiate themselves for a concealed purpose. Signs of affection or excessive affability are not characteristic. They look like the real thing. That's from the mask of sanity, an attempt to clarify some issues about the so-called psychopathic personality, first published in 1941. During testimony, they went over forensic evidence to explain what they were able to get prints from and what they were not. In all, 20 items were tested for fingerprints and were compared to the known fingerprints of 24 different people, including members of the Matarazzo family, Rachel's friends Joanna Gately and Maureen Gately, who were the first people to sound the alarm about Rachel being missing, also several police officers, Neil Entwistle, and the people who owned their rented home in Hopkinton. Only three comparable fingerprints were found in the house. They belonged to Rachel, Neil, and one of the home's owners at the time. Everyone on that list was eliminated, except Neil Entwistle. Entwistle told a different story about finding Rachel and Lily when he met with college friend Benjamin Pryor, who testified about the version of the story that he got at a dinner meeting on February 6th in London. He told his friends he had come home from errands, found the bodies around 11 a.m. on January 20th. He contemplated suicide with a knife, but could not follow through. He said that he drove to his in-law's home in Carver, planning to kill himself with a gun. He said he couldn't get into the house. He met with Mrs. Matarazzo, told her about finding the bodies, grieved with the family, and told the police everything that had happened. He did none of that. The defense called no witnesses, and Neil Entwistle did not take the stand. The Commonwealth presented a great deal of evidence to prove Neil Entwistle killed Rachel and Lily. The jury found him guilty of all charges on June 25, 2008, and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole, the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder in the state of Massachusetts. Judge Diane Kettmeyer made it clear that this was a whole life sentence subject to a governor's pardon or successful appeal. Kettmeyer imposed two life sentences on the murder charges and 10 years of probation on the firearms and ammunitions charges, all to run concurrently, and the condition that he never profit from his story. A consecutive sentence would be purely symbolic. For that reason, I am imposing concurrent sentences for the murders of Rachel and Lillian Entwistle. That means that the defendant will serve, the actual sentence that the defendant will serve will be for both murders. The case was a media frenzy from day one. The defense had motioned for a change of venue, citing relentless media coverage had left only one place in Massachusetts where Entwistle could have a fair trial. Egertown. Attorney Elliot Weinstein said that with a straight face. Weinstein floated an island in June. It's on Martha's Vineyard. Have you seen Jaws? There. But his claim was that the entire state of Massachusetts had been permeated by media coverage. Except the island. Hilarious. 
Yes, there was a great deal of media coverage. And on the day the trial began, in a boring old courtroom in Woburn, Woburn's fine, but remember, he floated Town. Boston crime writer Michelle McPhee released a book about the murders. The week the trial started. If constant news coverage didn't convict him, that locked him up and threw away the key in the court of public opinion. She called it Heartless, the true story of Neil Entwistle and the cold-blooded murder of his wife and child. A little twist of drama to sell books for a man who hadn't been convicted yet. The Entwistles still hold fast to their son's innocence. They believe he did not get a fair trial. Clifford Entwistle self-released a book, Neil's Story, Trial by Media, a 62-page paperback published in 2018, where he lays out how he believes his son was railroaded and misrepresented. There are a few reviews, mostly are favorable, and all are from the UK. For 15 years, the Entwistle family has not wavered in their belief that Neil is innocent and that Rachel is responsible. I have a great deal of compassion for the families of people who perpetrated awful crimes, and there is a lot of emotion there. They often harbor guilt and shame, and some live in fear that others will find out. I have a family story. Maybe one day I will share it with you. But for now, I will stick to telling the stories of others. In a victim impact statement read before the court, the Matarazzo family said, Our dreams as a parent and grandparent have been shattered by the shameful, selfish act of one person, Neil Entwistle. The Entwistle family was aggrieved as well, in a different way. They too lost a grandchild. They were dealing with the prospect of their oldest son going to prison for life. And 15 years later, they're still hoping for his vindication. Today, Neil Entwistle is 42 years old, the same age Rachel would be. Lillian would be 15, 16 in April. He is housed at the Old Colony Correctional Center in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, where he is serving two life sentences. There are a few positive things for the Matarazzo and Sousa families. No parole hearings. He will not be released. Initially, he was sent to the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Shirley, but was moved in August 2008, two months into his sentence. There was some semblance of poetic justice served when he was tricked into shaving his head bald to prove his allegiance to the resident skinheads on cell block C. I don't know if that's the official cell block. It was a gag they pulled, convincing him he'd be protected by the white supremacist prison gang. Instead, they told him, nice gesture on your part, but we're going to kill you. Entwistle was moved to administrative segregation, or ADSEG, also known as protective custody, and transferred to the Old Colony Correction Center, a minimum security prison in Bridgewater that December. The Department of Corrections confirmed the threats to kill him were very serious. Baby killers are on the segment of the prison population that are high risk, targeted for violence. In the years that followed, Neil Entwistle maintained his convict status among the jail mail contingent. Convict groupies. There is a condition, I've learned, hybristophilia, Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. It is a type of paraphilia in which a person gets sexually aroused over someone else committing an offensive or violent act. According to Catherine Ramsland, PhD, professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University and author of the book, 
Confession of a Serial Killer, the untold story of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Oh, that guy's fucked. Paraphilia, by the way, a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires typically involving dangerous or extreme activities. That's a show. Women reach out to killers and felons. Men do too, for sure. Neil Entwistle is a groupie magnet, a sad, childless widower to some, convicted of a crime he didn't do. For some, that's what they like, the knowledge of that crime being committed. Some of the most vile and violent murderers and offenders have a fan club. Ted Bundy did. Richard Ramirez did. Scott Peterson does. Chris Watts does. That deviant bag of waste Ian Watkins does. He's the former lead singer of the Welsh band Lost Prophets. Such irony in that name, by the way. They saw moderate success and lost all their profits. He is serving a very long prison sentence for multiple sexual offenses against children. Very young children. Absolutely heinous. That goes over swell on the inside. Entwistle reportedly shared some revealing details to one jail mail pen pal, Heather Standalt. When the two were discussing the loss of a relative, Entwistle claims to have seen Rachel and Lillian die. He was convicted of murdering them, so that holds up. But the story is now that he witnessed her murder-suicide. When I think back, I still wonder what went through Lily's mind, nine months old though she was, as she yelled out in pain. Was she calling for her daddy to come and help? Manipulation from a psychopath. I love the way the British tabloids write about this stuff. The bombshell letter was among several in a series of creepy sex letters in which he initially claimed he had found God. Because prison is where God goes to hide, you know. Then he described some gross sex stuff he wanted to impress upon her, and even she thinks he's guilty. Thank you for listening. That concludes part two, episode 10, double digits. Yay me. Show notes and photos linked at crimeofthetruestkind.com. Photos also on Instagram at crimeofthetruestkind. Thanks for making this show happen. I'm a little baby, and you're going to help me grow. Listen to the show, subscribe, rate and review. Available everywhere you get your crime stories, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts, on SoundCloud, Podchaser, Deezer, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora. You get the picture. And that extra special feature, word of mouth, if you like it tell a friend. Thank you. If you would like a first-run Crime of the Truest Kind sticker, you can send me a DM or an email with your address. I promise I will keep it private and I will not send the authorities to your home. You have my word. Have a great week until I speak to you again, true crimers. Lock your goddamn doors. Mm